Section 3 The Book of Ghosts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. The Book of Ghosts by Sabine Barring Gould. Section 3 Pomps and Vanities. Part 2. So it was settled. Lady Lacey had raised no objection, and now she and her niece had to consider what Betty should wear. Thin garments were out of the question. The weather was too cold, and it would be especially chilly on the river. Betty was still in slight mourning, so she chose a silver-gray cloth costume, with a black band about her waist, and a white straw hat with a ribbon to match her gown. On the day of the regatta, Betty said to herself, "'How ignorant I am!' Fancy my not knowing where Henley is. That it is on the Thames or the Isis I really do not know, but I fancy the former. Yes, I am almost positive it's on the Thames. I have seen pictures in the graphic and illustrated of the race last year, and I know that the river was represented as broad, and the Isis can only be an insignificant stream. I will run into the schoolroom and find a map of the environs of London's and post myself up on the geography. One hates to look like a fool. Without a word to anyone, Betty found her way into the apartment given up to lessons when children were in the house. It lay at the back, down a passage. Since Lady Lacey had occupied the place, neither she nor Betty had been in it more than casually and rarely. And accordingly, the servants had neglected to keep it clean. A good deal of dust lay about, and Betty, laughing, wrote her name in the fine powder on the school table, then looked at her finger, found it black, and said, Oh, brother! I forgot that the dust of London is smut. She went to the bookcase and groped for a map of the metropolis in the country round, but could not find one. Nor could she lay her hand on a gazetteer. This must do, she said, drawing out a large, thick Johnston's atlas, if the scale be not too small to give Henley. She put the heavy volume on the table and opened it. England, she found, was in two parts, one map of the northern and the second of the southern division. She spread out the ladder, placed her finger on the blue line of the Thames, and began to trace it up. Whilst her eyes were on it, searching at the small print, they closed, and without being conscious that she was sleepy, her head bowed forward on the map, and she was breathing evenly, steeped in the most profound slumber. She woke slowly. Her consciousness returned to her little by little. She saw the atlas without understanding what it meant. She looked about her, and wondered how she could be in the schoolroom, and then she observed that the darkness was closing in. Only then, suddenly, did she recall what had brought her where she was. Next, with a rush, upon her came the remembrance that she was due at the boat race. She must have again overslept herself. For the evening had come on, and through the window she could see the glimmer of gaslights in the street. Was this to be accompanied by her former experiences? With a throbbing heart she went into the passage. Then she noticed that the hall was lighted up, and she heard her aunt speaking, and the slam of the front door, and the maid say, "'Shall I take off your wraps, my lady?' She stepped forth upon the landing, and proceeded to descend, when, with a shock that sent blood coursing to her heart, and that paralyzed her movements, she saw herself ascending the stair in her silver-gray costume and straw hat. She clung to the banister with a conclusive grip, lest she should fall, and stared, without power to utter a sound, as she saw herself quietly mount, step by step, 
pass her, go beyond to her own room. For fully ten minutes she remained rooted to the spot, unable to even stir a finger. Her tongue was stiff, her muscles set, her heart ceased to beat. Then slowly her blood began to circulate, her nerves to relax, power of movement returned. With a hoarse gasp she reeled from her place, and giddy, touching the banister every moment to prevent herself from falling, she crept downstairs. But when once in the hall she had recovered flexibility. She ran towards the morning room, whither Lady Lacey had gone to gather up the letters that had arrived by post during her absence. Betty stood looking at her speechless. Her aunt raised her face from the envelope she was considering. "'Why, Betty,' said she, "'how expeditiously you have changed your dress!' The girl could not speak, but fell unconscious on the floor. When she came to herself she was aware of a strong smell of vinegar. She was lying on the sofa and Martha was applying a moistened kerchief to her brow. Lady Lacey stood by, alarmed and anxious, with a bottle of smelling salts in her hand. "'Oh, aunt, I saw.' Then she ceased. It would not do to tell of the apparition. She would not be believed. "'My darling,' said Lady Lacey, "'you are overdone, and it was foolish of you tearing upstairs and scrambling into your morning gown. I have sent for groves. Are you able to rise?' Can you manage to reach your room? My room, she shuddered. Let me lie here a little longer. I cannot walk. Let me be here till the doctor comes. Certainly, dearest, I thought you looked very unlike yourself all day at the regatta. If you had felt out of sorts, you ought not to have gone. Auntie, I was quite well in the morning. Presently the medical man arrived and was shown in. Betty saw that Lady Lacey proposed staying through the interview. Accordingly, she said nothing to Dr. Groves about what she had seen. "'She is overdone,' said he. "'The sooner you move her down to Devonshire, the better. Someone had better be in her room to-night.' "'Yes,' said Lady Lucy. "'I thought of that, and have given orders. Martha can make up her bed on the sofa in the adjoining dressing-room or boudoir.' This was a relief to Betty, who dreaded returning to her room, her room into which her other self had gone. "'I will call again in the morning,' said the medical man. "'Keep her in bed to-morrow, at all events, until I have seen her.' When he left, Betty found herself unable to ascend the stairs. She cast a frightened glance about her room. The straw hat, the grey dress were there. No one was in it. She was helped to bed, and although laid in it with her head among the pillows, she could not sleep. Racking thoughts tortured her. What was the signification of that encounter?' What of her strange sleeps? What of those mysterious appearances of herself, where she had not been? The theory that she had walked in her sleep was untenable. How was she to solve the riddle? That she was going out of her mind was no explanation. Only towards morning did she doze off. When Dr. Groves came, about eleven o'clock, Betty made a point of speaking to him alone, which was what she greatly desired. She said to him, Oh, it has been worse this last occasion, far worse than before. I do not walk in my sleep. Whilst I am buried in slumber, someone else takes my place. Whom do you mean? Surely not one of the maids. Oh, no, I met her on the stairs last night. That is what made me faint. Whom did you meet? Myself, my double. Nonsense, Miss Mountjoy. But it is a fact. I saw myself as clearly as I see you now. I was going down into the hall. You saw yourself? You saw your own pleasant, pretty face in a looking-glass? There is no looking-glass on the staircase, 
Besides, I was in my alpaca morning gown, and my double had on my pearl-gray cloth costume with my straw hat. She was mounting as I was descending. Tell me the story. I went yesterday an hour or so before I had to dress into the schoolroom. I am awfully ignorant, and I did want to see a map and find out where was Henley, because, you know, I was going to the boat race. And I dropped off into one of those dreadful deep sleeps with my head on the atlas. When I awoke it was evening and the gas lamps were lighted. I was frightened and ran out onto the landing and heard them arrive, just come back from Henley. And as I was going down the stairs I saw my double coming up, and we met face to face. She passed me by and went to my room, to this room. So you see, this is proof pause that I am not a somnambulist. I never said you were. I never for a moment admitted the supposition that if you remember was your own idea. What I said before is what I repeat now, that you suffer from failure of memory. But that cannot be so, Dr. Groves. Pray, why not? Because I saw my double wearing my regatta costume. I hold to my opinion, Miss Mountjoy. If you will listen to me, I shall be able to offer a satisfactory explanation. Satisfactory, I mean, so far as to make your experiences intelligible to you. I do not at all imply that your condition is satisfactory. Well, tell me, I cannot make heads or tails of this matter. It is this, young lady. On several recent occasions you have suffered from lapses of memory. All recollection of what you did, where you went, what you said, has been clean wiped out. But on this last it was somewhat different. The failure took place on your return, and you forgot everything that had happened since you were engaged in the schoolroom looking at the atlas. Yes. Then on your arrival here, as Miss Lacey told me, you ran upstairs, and in a prodigious hurry changed your clothes and put on your... My alpaca. Your alpaca, yes. Then in descending to the hall your memory came back, but was still entangled with flying reminiscences of what had taken place during the intervening period. Amongst other things, I remember no other things. You recalled confusedly one thing only and that you had mounted the stairs in your, your, my pretty gray cloth with the straw hat and satin ribbon, precisely, whilst in your morning gown, into which you had scrambled, you recalled yourself in the regatta costume going upstairs to change. This fragmentary reminiscence presented itself before you as a vision. Actually, you saw nothing. The impression on your brain of a scrap recollected appeared to you as if it had been an actual object depicted on the retina of your eye. Such things happen, and happen not infrequently, in cases of D.T. But I haven't D.T. I don't drink. I do not say that. If you allow me to proceed, in cases of D.T., the patient fancies he sees rats, devils, all sorts of objects. They appear to him as obvious realities. He thinks that he sees them with his eyes, but he does not. These are mere pictures formed on the brain. Then you hold that I really was at the boat race? I am positive that you were. And that I danced at Lady Belgrove's ball? Most assuredly. And heard Carmen at Her Majesty's? I have not the remotest doubt that you did. Betty drew a long breath and remained in consideration. Then, she said very gravely, I want you to tell me, Dr. Groves, quite truthfully, quite frankly. Do not think that I shall be frightened, whatever you say. I shall merely prepare for what may be. Do you consider that I am going out of my mind? 
I have not the least occasion for supposing so. That, said Betty, would be the most terrible thing of all. If I thought that, I would say right out to my aunt that I wished at once to be sent to an asylum. You may set your mind at rest on that score. But loss of memory is bad, but better than the other. Will these fits of failure come again? That is more than I can prognosticate. Let us hope for the best. A complete change of scene, change of air, change of association. Not to leave Auntie. No, I do not mean that, but to get away from London society. It may restore you to what you were. You never had those fits before? Never, never till I came to town. And when you have left town they may not recur. I shall take precious good care not to revisit London if it's going to play these tricks with me. That day Captain Fottenell called, and he was vastly concerned to hear that Betty was unwell. She was not looking herself, he said, at the boat race. He feared that the cold on the river had been too much for her. But he did trust that he might be allowed to have a word with her before she returned to Devonshire. Although he did not see Betty, he had an hour's conversation with Lady Lacey, and he departed with a smile on his face. On the morrow he called again. Betty had so completely recovered that she was cheerful, and the pleasant color had returned to her cheeks. She was in the drawing-room along with her aunt when he arrived. The captain offered his condolences, and expressed his satisfaction that her indisposition had been so quickly got over. "'Oh,' said the girl, "'I am as right as a trivet. It is all passed off. I did not have soaked in bed all yesterday, but that aunt would have it so. We are going down to our home to-morrow. Yesterday auntie was scared and thought she would have to postpone our return. Lady Lacey rose and made the excuse that she had the packing to attend to, and left the young people alone together. When the door shut behind her, Captain Fontenelle drew his chair close to that of the girl and said, "'Betty, you do not know how happy I have felt since you accepted me. It was a hurried affair in the boathouse, but really time was running short, as you were off so soon to Devonshire. I had to snatch at the occasion when there was no one by, so I seized all time by the forelock, and you were so good as to say yes. I—I I stammered, Betty. But as the thing was done in such haste, I came here today to renew my offer of myself and to make sure of my happiness. You have had time to reflect, and I trust you do not repent. Oh, you were so good and kind to me. Dearest Betty, what a thing to say. It is I, poor wretched, good-for-naught, who have caused to speak such words to you. Put your hand into mine. It is a short courtship of a soldier, like that of Harry V, and the fair maid of France. I love you. Then if you urge me farther to say, do you in faith? I wear out my suit. Give me your answer, if faith do. And so clap hands and a bargain. Am I quoting aright? Shyly, hesitatingly, she extended her fingers and he clasped them. Then shrinking back and looking down, she said, but I ought to tell you something first, something very serious, which may make you change your mind. I do not, in conscience, feel it right that you should commit yourself until you know. It must be something very dreadful to make me do that. It is dreadful. I am apt to be terribly forgetful. Bless me, so am I. I have passed several of my acquaintances lately and have not recognized them, but that was because I was thinking of you and I fear I have been very oblivious about my bills, and as to answering letters, good heavens, I am a shocking defaulter. I do not mean that. I have lapses of memory. 
why i do not even remember he sealed her lips with a kiss will you not forget this at any rate betty oh charlie no then consider this betty our engagement cannot be for long i am ordered to egypt and i positively must take my dear little wife with me to show her the pyramids you would like to see them would you not i should love to and the sphinx indeed i should and pompey's pillar oh charlie i shall love above everything to see you every day that is prettily said i see we understand one another now hearken to me give me your close attention and no fits of lapse of memory over what i now say please we must be married very shortly i positively will not go without you i would rather throw up my commission but what about papa's consent i shall wire him full particulars as to my position income and prospects also how much i love you and how i will do my level best to make you happy that is the approved formula in addressing pater familias i think then he will telegraph back bless you my boy all is settled i know that lady lucy approves but dear dear aunt she will be so awfully lonely without me she shall not be she has no ties to hold her to her little cottage in devon she shall come out to us in cairo and we will bury the dear old girl up to her neck in the sand of the desert and make a second sphinx of her and bake the rheumatism out of her bones it will cure all of her aches as sure as my name is charlie and yours will be fontenelle don't be too sure of that but i am sure you cannot forget i will try not to do so charlie oh charlie don't mrs thomas the dressmaker and miss crock the milner had their hands full betty's trousseau had to be gotten ready expeditiously patterns of materials specially adapted for a hot climate light beautiful artistic of silks and muslins and prints had to be commanded from liberties and then came the selection then the ordering then the discussions with the dressmaker and the measurings next the fittings for which repeated visits had to be made to mrs thomas adjustments alterations were made easements under the arms tightenings about the waist there were fullnesses to be taken in and skimpiness to be released the skirts had to be sufficiently short in front and sufficiently long behind as for the wedding dress mrs thomas was not regarded as quite competent to execute such a masterpiece for that an expedition had to be made to exeter the wedding cake must be ordered from merch in the cathedral city lady lacy was particular that in as much as possible of the outfit should be given to a county tradesman a riding habit tailor-made was ordered to fit like a glove and a lady's saddle must be taken out to egypt boxes basket trunks were to be procured and a correspondence carried on as to the amount of personal luggage allowed lady lacy and betty were constantly running up by express to exeter about this that and everything then ensued the sending out of the invitations and the arrival of wedding presents that entailed the writing of gushing letters of acknowledgment and thanks by betty herself but these were not allowed to interfere with the scribbling of four pages every day to captain fontenelle intended for his eyes alone interviews were sought by the editors or agents of local newspapers to ascertain whether reporters were desired to describe the wedding and as to the length of the notices that were to be inserted whether all the names of the donors of presents were to be included and their gifts registered 
Verily, Lady Lucy and Betty were kept in a whirl of excitement, and their time occupied from morning till night, and their brains exercised from night to morning. Glass and china and plate had to be hired for the occasion. Wine ordered. Fruit, cake, ices commanded. But all things come to an end, and even the preparations for a wedding. At last the eventful day arrived, bright and sunny, a true May morning. The bridesmaids arrived, each wearing the pretty brooch presented by Captain Fontenelle. Their costume was suitable to the season of primrose yellow, with hats turned up, white with primroses. The pages were in green velvet with knee breeches and three-cornered hats, lace ruffles, and lace fronts. The butler had made the claret cup and the champagne cup, and after a squirmish over the neighborhood, some barrage had been obtained to float on the top. Lady Lacey was to hold a reception after the ceremony, and a marquee had been erected in the grounds, as the cottage could not contain all the guests invited. The dining-room was delivered over for the exposing of the presents. A carriage had been commanded to convey the happy couple to the station, horses and drivers with white favors. With a sigh of relief in the morning, Lady Lacey declared that she believed that nothing had been forgotten. The trunk stood ready-packed, all but one, and labeled with the name of Mrs. Fontenelle. A flag flew over the church tower. Villagers had constructed a triumphal arch at the entrance to the grounds. The people from farms and cottages had all turned out, and were already congregating about the churchyard with smiles and heartfelt wishes for the happiness of the bride, who was a mighty favorite among them, indeed, as was also Lady Lacey. The Sunday school children had clubbed their pence, and had presented Betty, who had taught them, with a silver set of mustard pot, pepper, caster, and salt shaker. "'Oh, dear,' said Betty, "'what shall I do with all these sets of mustard and pepper pots? I have now received eight. "'A little later, dear,' replied her aunt, "'you can exchange those that you do not require.' "'But never that set given me by my Sunday-school pets,' said Betty. "'Then came in flights of telegrams of congratulation, "'and at the last moment arrived some more wedding presents. "'Good gracious me!' exclaimed the girl. "'I really must manage to acknowledge all these. "'There will be just time before I begin to dress.' "'So she trept upstairs to her boudoir, "'a little room given over to herself, "'in which to do her water-color painting, "'her reading, to practice her music.' A bright little room to which now, as she felt with an ache, was to bid an eternal good-bye. What happy hours had been spent in it! What daydreams had been spun there! She opened her writing-case and wrote the required letters of thanks. There, she said, when she had signed the fifth, this is the last time I shall subscribe myself Elizabeth Mountjoy, except when I sign my name in the church register. Oh, how my back is hurting me! I was not in bed until two o'clock, and was up again at seven, and I have been on the tear for the whole week. There will be just time for me to rest it before the business of dressing begins. She threw herself on the sofa, and put up her feet. Instantly she was asleep, in a sound, dreamless sleep. When Betty opened her eyes, she heard the church bells ringing a merry peal. Then she raised her lids, and turning her head on the sofa cushion, saw a bride, herself in full bridal dress, with the white veil and the orange blossoms, seated at her table. The gloves had been removed, and lay on the lap. An indescribable terror held her fast. She could not cry out. She could not stir. She could only look. Then the bride put back the veil, 
and Betty, studying the white face, saw that this actually was not herself. It was her dead sister, Letice. The apparition put forth a hand and laid it on her and spoke. Do not be frightened. I will do you no harm. I love you too dearly for that, Betty. I have been married in your name. I have exchanged vows in your name. I have received the ring for you. Put it on your finger. It is not mine. It in no way belongs to me. In your name I signed the register. You are married to Charles Fontenelle, and not I. Listen to me. I will tell you all, and then when I have told you everything, you will see me no more. I will trouble you no further. I shall enter into my rest. You will see before you only the wedding garments remaining. I shall be gone. Hearken to me. When I was dying, I died in frantic despair, because I had never known what were the pleasures of life. My last cries, my last regrets, my last longings were for the pomps and vanities. She paused and slipped the gold hoop onto the forefinger of Betty's hand. Then she proceeded. When my spirit parted from my body, it remained a while irresolute, whither to go. But then, remembering that my aunt had declared that I would never go to heaven, I resolved in forcing my way in there out of defiance, and I soared until I reached the gates of paradise. At them stood an angel with a fiery sword drawn in his hand, and he laid it athwart the entrance. I approached, but he waved me off, and when the point of the flaming blade touched my heart, there passed a pang through it, I know not whether joy or sorrow, and he said, Letice, you have not been a good girl, you were sullen, resentful, rebellious, and therefore are unfit to enter here. Your longings through life and to that moment of death were for the world and its pomps and vanities. The last throb of your heart was given to repining for them. But your faults were due largely to the mistakes of your rearing, and now hear your judgment. You shall not pass within these gates till you have returned to earth and partaken of and had your fill of pomps and vanities. As for that old cat, your aunt, but no, Betty, he did not quite say that. I put it in, and I ought not to have done so. I bear her no resentment. I wish her no ill. She did by me what she believed to be right. She acted towards me up to her lights. Alas for me, that the light which was in her was darkness. The angel said, As for your aunt, before she can enter here, she will want illumining, enlarging, and sweetening, and will have to pass through purgatory. And, oh, the impression on your brain of a scrap recollected appeared to you as if it had been an actual object depicted on the retina of your eye. Betty, that will be gall and bitterness to her for she did not believe in purgatory, and she wrote a conversational pamphlet against it. Then said the angel, Return, return to the pomps and vanities. I fell on my knees and said, Oh, suffer me but to have one glimpse of that which is within. Be it so, he replied. One glimpse only whilst I cast my sword on high. Thereat he threw up his flaming brand, and it was as though the glorious flash of lightning filled all space. At the same moment the gates swung apart, and I saw what was beyond. It was but for a brief moment, for the sword came down, and the angel caught it by the handle, and instantly the gates were shut. And then sorrowfully I turned myself about and went back to earth. And Betty, it was I who took and read your novels. It was I who went to Lady Belgrove's ball in your place. 
It was I who sat, instead of you, at Her Majesty's and heard Carmen. It was I who took your place at Henley Regatta. And I, I, instead of you, received the protestation of Charles Fontenelle's affection. And there in the boathouse I received the first and last kiss of love. And it was I, Betty, as I have told you, who took your place at the altar today. I had the pleasures that were designed for you. The ball dress, the dances, the fair words, the music of the opera, the courtship, the excitement of the regatta, and reading of sensational novels. It was I who had all the girls most longed for. Their most supreme bliss of wearing the wedding veil and the orange blossoms. But I have reached my limit. I am full of the pomps and vanities, and I return on high. You will see me no more. Oh, Letice, said Betty, obtaining her speech, you do not grudge me the joys of life? The fair white being at her side shook her head. And you desire no more of the pomps and vanities? No, Betty, I have looked through the gates. Then Betty put forth her hands to clasp the waist of her sister, as she said fervently, Tell me, Letice, what saw you beyond? Betty, everything the reverse of Salem Chapel. End of section three. Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com.